0: One of the uh, hard things about being the pastor of an international church is people are always passing through, and uh, you fall in love with them, and they leave, but that's how it is, and so, uh, yeah, that's how it is. Your eyes widen, your pupils dilate, your lips stretch horizontally, and your upper lip will rise. Your Brows draw together, your muscles tighten, and your heart rate goes up. It started in the Garden of Eden, and it permeates both the Old and the New Testament, and all of human history. It's one of the most frequently mentioned emotions in the Bible. Adam and Eve felt it. Abraham and Moses felt it. Joshua and David felt it. Isaiah and Jeremiah Felt it. Peter, James, and John felt it. You and I feel it. The Bible speaks of this emotion approximately 600 times. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody want to guess? The emotion is fear. The emotion is fear. Fear has been the constant companion of mankind ever since Genesis chapter 3 when mankind declared their independence from... Their creator. I was looking this week on Google. I mean, you can Google anything. It's just astonishing to me that you can Google anything and stuff will come up. I mean, even if it's worthless, it comes up. But I Googled phobias. Do you know that there are people in this world who are afraid of flowers? Did you know this? Did you know that there's a man or woman somewhere they're afraid of clouds? I mean, humanity is phobia ridden and riddled. We're afraid of almost seemingly anything. So why is mankind so afraid? Why are we such frightened little creatures? Bad theology would be my answer. You guys know what happened in the garden. Satan came to Adam and Eve. He got them to believe a lie about God. He He said that God's not good. If God loved you, He'd give you the fruit on that tree. He's holding out on you. I've shared this with you many times. Satan lied to Adam and Eve. They believed the lie. They doubted God's goodness. And they took and they ate. They, They rebelled against God. And ever since, man's been afraid. There was no fear before that incident, but ever since, man has been afraid. The Bible says their eyes were open and uh, they knew they were naked. Adam says it in Genesis 3.10 when he said to God, I heard the sound of thee in the garden and I was afraid. God didn't make His people afraid. We became afraid when we declared our independence from a God we were designed to depend on for everything. So mankind became afraid. Fear exists, as I said, because of bad theology. Man believed a lie about God and he discovered the truth about himself. Without God, we are hopelessly naked. We are hopelessly exposed. We are naked in every sense of the word. Our eyes were open, and we saw that without God, we were naked. In the fall, all mankind instinctively understands Adam's confession. We all understand it. We understand what Isaiah was saying, and Uh, when he caught a, a vision of God, the thrice holy God, he said, Woe is me, I am undone. It's the fear that comes from being in the presence of holiness. Because you and I know the truth. God is holy and we're not. Amen? Therein lies the first fear. The greatest fear. God is holy and I'm not holy. As Isaiah says, Woe is me, I am undone. I, I am a man of unclean lips. This is man's problem. You guys remember the Exodus account? I love this account in chapter twenty of Exodus. The the, the Exodus Jews witnessed the manifestations of, of God on, on Mount Sinai. Do you remember the account? The thunder and the lightning and the thick smoke and the darkness and the gloom and the storm and the people trembled before the Lord and they said, Moses, you go talk to Him. We don't want to hear Him anymore. They were scared to death before this awesome God when He came down on Mount Sinai. God is infinitely holy. He is a consuming fire. He is a consuming fire. God. In our sin and guilt, we we are utterly naked before the Lord. You guys know the passages. Ezekiel 11.5 He knows everything that comes into your mind. It's about enough that He sees everything you do. He knows everything that's in your mind. We are hopelessly naked before this omniscient God. You know Psalm 139.4, before there's a word on our tongue, what? He already knows it. <laughs> it's bad enough what we say sometimes. He knows, he knows it before it's on our tongue. We are naked before this great God. You know Hebrews 4.13, all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of God. In our sin and guilt, we are naked before the Lord. There's another sense in which we are naked, which compounds human fear. And that is, not only are we naked before him, we are naked without him. We are naked before him, but we are also naked without him. Without him, we are stripped away. You know, all our protection is stripped away. We are easy prey for the adversary. Without Our great God. We are hopelessly vulnerable and defenseless. Satan can devour us as a roaring lion devours its prey. So, why is man afraid of his own shadow? Adam said it perfectly. In our sin, we are naked before God. He is holy, and we are not. We are defenseless in the courtroom of God. We have no defense. We have no plea. Romans chapter 1. We are without excuse. Before this holy God, we have willfully, with premeditation, rebelled against him, and we are without excuse. We have no defense. There is no defense. And the other way that we are naked is that we are naked without Him. We are hopelessly exposed before our spiritual adversary. It's not without good reason that God calls His people... What is the New Testament metaphor? God calls His people what? Your sheep! (laughs) I'm a sheep! It's the most... Helpless and defenseless creature on the planet. Without a shepherd, they're devoured. They're scattered. They perish. It's with good reason that God calls us sheep. But you know what our awesome God says in Ezekiel 34, right? You know what He says. I love this passage. God says, I Myself will search for My sheep. He's coming for us, beloved. We're naked. We're defenseless. It's hopeless. He's coming for a sheep. I love this passage. I Myself will search for My sheep. I will care for them and feed them and deliver them. I will bring them to good pasture. I will bind them up, the broken, and strengthen the sick. The Good Shepherd is coming. You know what Jesus said in John chapter 10? I am the Good Shepherd. The Beautiful Shepherd. He's the warrior shepherd. He lays His life down for His people. We're hopelessly naked and defenseless, but our shepherd has come. Beloved, that's why I come worship. (laughs) One of the many reasons I come and I worship this great God. He's my shepherd. Without Him, I'm hopeless. I'm hopelessly exposed. And as we talked at length about last week, we didn't go looking for Him, did we? Adam and Eve didn't go looking for, for, for the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd came for us. It's a beautiful, beautiful account. God says, I will find My sheep, and I will deliver My sheep. I will care for them, and I will bind them Uh, The one thing I want to say to you, fear arrived with God. When God came into the garden, Adam and Eve were afraid. Fear arrived with God. He's holy. We're not. But God extinguishes fear. This is the beautiful beautiful truth for the born-again believer. God extinguishes fear. Fear comes with Him, but He extinguishes that fear. For in Christ Jesus we are made... Holy, it's a beautiful, beautiful gospel. We are no longer naked in our guiltiness. Jesus is our Redeemer. Jesus is our Savior. We are no longer naked in our defenselessness. He is our Defender. He is our Fortress. He is our Strong Tower. He is our Shepherd who has laid His life down for His sheep. So tonight... I want to look at the text here. Our beautiful shepherd has vanquished all reasons for fear. And in our text tonight, we see what God has directed John to write. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Now if you were here last week, you realize that we looked at verses 7, 8, 11, 12, 16, 19, 20, and 21 of chapter 4. It was all dealing with loving the brethren. We've made the point. 1 John is a mirror. We're supposed to look into it. We're supposed to, if we're a Christian, we'll see our reflection in it. You don't need to ask your pastor or your, your uh, preacher or your, or your priest if you're a Christian. All you've got to do is read 1 John. If you look like 1 John, you're a Christian. And what are the two main points? The two main points are that we will practice righteousness. And we will, what did we talk about at length last week? We will love the brethren. These are the two main points of, of, of 1 John. The book of assurance. And we would practice righteousness. We would love and worship Jesus as we obey Jesus. You know, beloved, I know you know. This is your, your greatest worship. When you go out into the world and you, you obey Him. You obey Him in your family, in your marriage, with your kids, on the job. You obey Him. This is your highest form of love and worship. To obey the Lord. It's the hallmark of true Christianity. It's the hallmark of a true convert. We've made the point. Not perfectly. None of us obey the Lord perfectly. We get that. If we study all of the book of John, we understand that. We're called to obedience, beloved. It's the hallmark of true conversion. And we're called to love the body that's the burden of the book. Some of you who are biblically literate, you know why the Lord directed John to write this book. It's in the last chapter, verse chapter 5, verse 13. You guys know. You guys know what John wrote. He said, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, in order that you may know that you have eternal life. God wants you to know you have it. You know why He wants you to know you have it? Because He wants you to go out there and live it. You're supposed to know you have it. So you can go out there and live it. You're not supposed to be navel-gazing, worrying about whether I have it or not. Read 1 John. If you look like 1 John, you have it. Go live it. That's what this book is about, beloved. That's what the book is about. We're not supposed to be living careful, small, afraid lives. That's the antithesis of biblical Christianity. The people who do know their God shall be what? Fearless, courageous, and they shall do what? Exploits. Thank you, Dandra. Exploits. God expects His people to do exploits of faith. Why? Because our God is great. Why? Because our God's a rewarder. It's all in the book. It's all in the book. It's not a complex situation. It's really quite simple. God says, I've saved you. Go live like it. I'm a great God. A mighty God. A God who can be trusted. I'm a promise keeper. Live like it. Beloved, It's the last hour. We've been talking about it for the last three or four. It's the last hour. You don't have time. (laughs) You don't have time to live this little, small, careful Christian life. That's the antithesis of what the Bible has called us to. The burden of the book of 1 John is that we might know I'm going to give you a quick litany of verses. Chapter 2, verse 3. By this we know that we know Him. 2-5 By this we know that we are in Him. How? By obedience. We love and worship Jesus in our obedience. We love and worship Jesus by loving the brethren. These are the two things that He's hammering home for us. In 1 John, chapter 3, verse 10, by this it's obvious who the children of God are. Chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death and into life because... Chapter 3, verse 19, by this we shall know that we are of the truth. Chapter 3, 24, by this we know that He abides in us. Chapter 4, verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Chapter 4, verse 6, by this we know the Spirit of, of truth. Chapter 5, verse 2, By this we know that we love the children of God. God means for you to know you belong to Him. And then he means, to, he means for you to go out there and live a huge life of faith for the glory of Jesus. That Jesus may be made famous in your orbit. Beloved, that's the only I would say this to you all, it's the only reason you've been left here. That's why God's left you on the planet. I mean, it would be very much better, as Paul says, to just go be with Him. It'd be very much better. What do you think you're still here for? (laughs) You're a disciple. You're here to be a disciple. You're here to make Jesus famous. You're here to share the Gospel. So, we've already covered many of these verses that I read to you earlier. We talked about them last week as we drove home the point That we're to love the brethren. So I'm not going to cover those again. We'll look at the new verses here in John 10 that we have not touched on yet. Let me, yeah, verse 9. By this the love of God was manifested in us that God had sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sin. Verse 8 tells us that God is love. We've talked about this many times, so I won't belabor the point. Love is not merely something God does. It is who He is. It is who He is. Perfect love flows within the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And He pulls us up into, not that we become divine, but we experience that God kind of love if He sets His heart upon us. Some of you may remember John 17 23. Jesus said, We are loved by the Father even as the Father has loved the Son. Don't you love this? We're not loved in some secondary or uh, ancillary way. We are loved as the Father loves the Son. If you don't, you know, if that doesn't make you want to lay on your face and worship, I don't know if you're hearing me. We're not stepchildren to God. He loves us like He loves His Son. You know, we were enemies, we talked about last week. We were enemies. Now we're adopted. And we're not stepchildren. We're not loved like adopted children. We're loved like the Father loves the Son. I, I just, I'm always amazed at how professing Christians have so little awe and wonder in the modern church. I'm always amazed. I want to say, do you read your Bible? <laughs> do you meditate on it? You can take any. You can just take. You can open it up randomly, and you could read. You know, just a couple of pages, and you're going to hit something that's just going to make your heart explode if you really believe it. mean, God's just saying these awesome things. He's saying these awesome things to us. Verse 9 tells us the measure of God's love, the shocking and outrageous thing. God has become a man. If this is not shocking to you, you're not understanding it. The infinite condescension of God, this should be shocking. You know, I know that if we grew up in the church, it's like music now. We don't even hear it anymore, it doesn't move our hearts anymore. Beloved, repent. If it doesn't move your heart, if it doesn't cause you to want to get on your face, if it doesn't cause you to want to go out in the world and radically obey the Lord, then repent! I know I'm excited. I get excited when I think about these things. We have an awesome God and an awesome Savior. An awesome Gospel. An awesome call. Are you living it, beloved? Are you living it? Time is short. It is the last hour. And even if Jesus doesn't come back for another thousand years you're a vapor upon the earth you only have moments you only have moments before you'll step in front of the Lord it's so shocking god would become a man he's laying in, god's in a manger god's teaching in the temple god's preaching on the mount god's nailed to a tree god's laid in a tomb Beloved, don't let it be music to you. Don't let it be music to you. Be in awe. Be in awe. If you're hearing it and understanding it, you will be in awe. Verse ten reminds us. Verse ten reminds us that, 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 that it wasn't because we loved God first. We talked about it last week, and I won't go into great detail. But God came after us. As one theologian says, we were, we were rebels with weapons in our hands, but He set His heart on us. And He came for us. Verse 10 also tells us that Jesus is our propitiation. You know what that means, right? If you're a Christian, you're supposed to know this Word. I've said this to you before. If you don't know this Word, you've got to know this Word. Propitiation. What does it mean? Does anybody want to say? I know it's a lot of pressure. <laughs> It's not hard for me. It's in my notes. <laughs> Propitiation. God has, Jesus has removed the wrath of God from us. It essentially, is what it means. I mean, you could, I could develop it into a big theological, impressive definition. But essentially, Jesus has removed the wrath of God from us. We talked about it in young adult Bible study the other night. You should be in hell. I should be in hell. But we'll never be in hell. Jesus has removed the righteous wrath of God from his people. Jesus did that. That's what propitiation means. So just remember it. When you think about propitiation, I should be in hell. Think about it that way. But you won't be in hell. Jesus has removed the wrath of God from you. That's what the bloody cross is all about. Go read Isaiah 53. That's what it was all about. Ephesians 2 says uh, about sinful and rebellious naked man that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but what's that great conjunction in Ephesians chapter 2? We were dead, but but God, but God. God came. The shepherd came. The shepherd came to save his people. As I've shared with you before, you know, I think some Christians, and we're all guilty of not thinking deeply on the Word of God and meditating deeply on it. But, you know, you talk to a lot of Christians and you get the sense that for them, eternity is just duration. Eternity is simply duration. Eternal life is just a long time. Beloved, it's infinitely more than a long time, it's not just length. It's height and depth and breadth. Huge God sized life forever. That's what God has purchased for his people. So if you're tempted to think about it, well, I'm just going to, yeah, I may get bored after the first billion eternities. No. God's going to fill up your eternities with himself. Don't worry about being bored. (laughs) He's an infinite being. There'll always be more to discover. And enjoy when it comes to Him. So the very life of God has been planted within us. Titus chapter 3. We are begotten of God. John chapter 3. We are partakers of the divine nature. 2 Peter 1. We have received the spirit of adoption. Romans chapter 8. We are mysteriously caught up into the Godhead. John 17. We are to taste and be enveloped in the joy of the Godhead. John 17. We are filled up to all the fullness of God. Ephesians chapter 3. This is the love of God for His people. You know, I've often said, God gives us more than any man would ever ask for. No right-thinking man would stand before God and say, I want to be like your son. I want the Holy Spirit to dwell in me. I want to be a man or woman who does exploits upon the earth. Any right-thinking man would never, particularly a sinful, fallen, rebellious, right-thinking man would never stand before a holy God and ask for all of that. And yet God freely gives it. He freely gives it. Beloved, we have an awesome God. Anyone agree? We have an awesome God. Don't you dare live your Christianity small. Don't you dare. His reputation is at stake in your life if you call yourself a Christian. At least as it, as it, as before the world, his reputation in the eyes of the unbeliever is at stake in how you live your faith. Not ultimately, but in the eyes of the unbeliever, his reputation is on the line in how you live your Christian life. You claim to be a Christian, Do people know you're a Christian. You're supposed to see awesome things in your life. Verses 13-15, through 15, By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of this world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. If we love one another, His love is perfected in us. That's what we've been talking a lot about in this book. You can't miss it if you read this book even in in the most cursory way. (laughs) You're supposed to be loving one another. We talked a lot about it last week. Four times in this text, you're going to see the word perfected or perfect. Now, you have to understand... Uh, it's a little different in the English. God's not saying you're called to perfect love. He's saying you're called to a mature love, an accomplished love, an effort of love. We're not, we're not going to ever be perfect in loving the body. We understand that. We've talked uh, at great length about that but a mature, accomplished, completed love. A love that loves with deeds. Remember, we saw it a week or so ago. We don't don't just simply love in word. We love in deed. And I challenge you, are you loving in deed? Don't claim to be a Christian if you're not loving in deed. Don't simply talk it. God hates that. (laughs) we study our Bibles, we understand it. God hates that. God means for His people to love. Indeed. It's what He's called us to. Beloved, it's what He's called us to. Often we have people leave ICM and they'll tell Karen and I, man, I really felt loved in your church. And this is something that, that always warms our hearts. It's a compliment to you. It's, it's not certainly just a compliment to us. It's a compliment to the body that they felt loved that's what, that's what people are supposed to feel when they're in a church. A Bible-believing church. A church that surrenders to the Word of God and, and acquiesces to the movements of the Spirit. You're, we're supposed to feel that kind of love. We're supposed to reach out in love. We talked a lot about it last week, so I won't go down that road again. But if you're here very long, you will be challenged to love this body. <laughs> it's your job. Love this body. Sacrificially, selflessly, love this body. Use your gifts in this body. Beloved, we need it. I mean, most of you guys are just passing through all the time. You can't just be a spectator here. You know, there's a lot of churches, you can just be a spectator. Not here. We need you too badly. We need you to bring your gifts to the church. We need you to be doing what God has brought you to Milan to do, not simply to earn a paycheck and go to school, but to be a part of a body of Christ, this body of Christ, and to serve it, to help build it up that it might be established. You know the reason this church exists today is because the internationals that went before you served this body. If the internationals that went before you had not served this body, this body would not be here. You know, i said to you many times, I see Him would not cease to exist because God is unfaithful, but it could cease to exist because we are. The only reason we exist, the only reason we stand in this building is because those who have gone before you have rolled up their sleeves and they've worked in this church, they've given to this church. It's the only way that we survive as God's people love Him and worship Him in this place and serve Him. In this place. By this perfected love in us, verse 12, look at verse 13, we know we abide in Him. By this perfected love, this love that rolls up its sleeve and goes to work, you know, the the love that serves, the love that gives, the love that's proactive and aggressive. He said "That's that kind of perfected love, by that we know that God abides in us. We know by this kind of love that indeed the Spirit is in us. We've talked about it. Mankind doesn't naturally love like this. We understand it's a supernatural love as we submit to the Holy Spirit. God says you love supernaturally when you begin to love each other even as I have loved you. You'll know you're in Me and I'm in you when you love like that. When you're really loving each other. It's the unmistakable mark of the Spirit of God in your life. It's the unmistakable mark of true conversion. Genuine Christianity is is never about religion. We've talked about this many, many times. You guys have heard me say it many times. It's always much simpler than that. It's loving God and living like we love God. And if we love God, we will love God's people. It's just that simple. (laughs) It's really just that simple. Christianity is not hard. It's not hard at all. Let me say it this way. Biblical Christianity is not hard. We understand there are a lot of false expressions of Christianity in the world verse 15 whoever confesses that jesus is the son of god god abides in him and he in god i was just sharing with someone before the service someone was talking to me about how you know these days if you just say the right words someone will say well that you're a christian because you said the right words you said the magic formula and you parroted the prayer you must be a christian beloved you can't find that anywhere in scripture what does it mean here What does it mean, whoever confesses? When the Bible talks about confession, it's talking about a lifestyle confession. We're not just talking about words coming off our mouths. In fact, God says, hey, you know, you worship me with your lips, but not with your heart. The heart worship, it comes out through the hands and the feet, and it serves and it loves and it gives. And it and it's 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 used up in the church. <laughs> so that's what that's what is meant here. Anytime you see the word confess, it's not merely I say it, it's I do it. It's a lifestyle confession. That's what is meant. So always remember that. There's much confusion in the modern church about that. You know what, Je- you know what, what Jesus' brother wrote, James? Satan believes. The demons believe. They confess. They're orthodox. <laughs> but that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about mental assent. That's not what the Bible is talking about. It's talking about a confession that is visible in the life. It is palpable. It is palpable in the life It's the Second Corinthians 5.17 thing. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Is that how it is with you and Jesus? The old stuff no longer holds the allure it used to. Now I'm supremely interested in Jesus Christ. It's the born again thing. Look at verses 17 and 18 real quick. By this, love is perfected with us that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in the world. In this world, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. It tells us, by this love is perfected that we may have confidence. If, we, if the love of God is flowing through us in the body, we will, we will have confidence. It is our confidence. We said it a couple times the last three or four weeks. Our confidence is not our religion. It's not our baptism. It's not the fact that we did some sacraments or, or we prayed a magic prayer. That's not our confidence. The, the fact that, that my name is on a roll somewhere on a, in a, what is called a Christian church somewhere. That is not our confidence. Our confidence is what? First John, I find in myself this desire to obey the Lord. I find in myself a desire to serve the body. This is our confidence. If we don't have those desires, we have no confidence before God. That's what 1 John's all about. That's what 1 John is all about. Perfected love, love in action, love in deed and in truth. Religious activity is not our confidence. It's the God work God's done in us. We know we're new creatures. We know it. You can. There's a line of demarcation. I once was like this and I love this. Now I'm like this and I love Him. There's that line of demarcation in the believer's life. And we see it. It's the the miracle God does in the life of His people. The God work that He's done in our hearts. That's how we know. 1 John, you remember 1 John 3.14. We know that we have passed out of death and into life. How? Because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. 1 John is so simple. I don't know how denominations and, and theologians and preachers have got it so messed up. All you have to do is read the Bible. It's really all we need to do is simply read the Bible. Our confidence is in God, not in our religion, not in our good works, not in our um, church membership or ordinances or sacraments or anything like that. John has expressed a similar sentiment twice in the book already. In chapter 2, verse 28, he says, we will not shrink away from His coming. Chapter 3, verse 21, we have confidence before God. Why? Because we have this desire to honor, the God, to honor our God with obedience, and we have a desire to love the brethren. These are gifts from God. No man, loves, no man has, the, has these things naturally. This is what John says is saying to us. So we don't fear the coming of the Lord. In fact, we're like John who wrote the Revelation. Come quickly, Lord Jesus! Come! You should have no fear of the coming of the Lord. You should have no fear of dying in a fiery crash on the way home. If you're a believer, <laughs> you're going to step in front of Jesus, which is very much better. We have no fear. God has extinguished our fear. We have no fear to step in front of a holy God. We are in His Son. And the adversary can do nothing to us apart from the will of God. He's a dog on a leash. So we don't go around fearing the devil and the demons. We don't have to worry about binding the demons. We talked about it at young adults Bible study. They're bound. And they can't touch me apart from what God allows them to do as He loves me to finish the work He's begun in me to bring me into conformity with Jesus. What does this phrase mean real quick and I'll be finished. Because as He is, so also are we in the world. We are like Christ in the world. We're supposed to resemble Jesus in the world. Do you, beloved? Do you resemble Jesus in the world? And also, it also means that God loves us and sees us like His Son. We are in His Son. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. We are sons and daughters of the King. We don't fear the temporal. We don't live this life with our fingers crossed. We trust in a sovereign God. We trust in the fact that He's promised to complete the good work He's begun in us. So we rest. We don't fear anything in the temporal realm. Nothing. As we meditate deeply on God, we fear nothing. And secondly, we are sons and daughters of the King. We don't fear the judgment. We will not face the judgment with our fingers crossed. We are confident in His finished work in the fact that He has loved us infinitely. If we are fearless in love, we will be fearless in the judgment. Maybe that sums it all up. If we are fearless in love, we will be fearless in the judgment. We will have confidence before the Lord. It's the most oft-repeated command of God to His people in Scripture. Do not be afraid. So, I, beloved, I send you forth this week. Do not be afraid. The people who know their God shall be courageous and they shall do exploits. Your God is God. Do you live like your God is God? Beloved, do you live like your God is God? Or have you conformed have you conformed to the wisdom of this world? I challenge you, beloved. Don't waste your life. As the book says on the table, don't waste your life. You've been redeemed for a God-sized life. You've been redeemed to make Jesus famous on this planet for the few moments that we have. We are naked no more before God. We are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Amen? We are naked no more before Satan. Christ is our vast granite fortress. Go live like it. Go live like it. Fear not. Your God is God. Your God has saved you. Do not entertain fear. Meditate deeply on who He is, what He's done, what He's promised. Go read Hebrews 11. That's what real faith looks like. Go read Hebrews 11. Men and women with real faith in a real God making a real difference in the real world. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for Your Word as always. We thank You, Father, that we don't need to fear anything or anyone. We know You. You're our Father. You've come for us and You've loved us in the most astonishing way. If we're not filled with awe and wonder, we've not yet understood it. We've not yet understood who we were and who we are. We've not yet understood that once we were enemies, but now we are co-heirs. Oh God, I pray that none of us would walk out this door and take that for granted. That we would have a renewed spirit of wonder and awe and worship and joy and life and fearlessness in the world. Because You're a great God and You're our God. And You give us license. You give us license to live our faith as huge as we dare. So Lord, we confess our sin to You. We we confess that many of us in this room, me included, have not been fearless. Have not been courageous. Lord, take us Bind us up. Fill us up. And use us for the glory of Your Son. For the few moments we have left on this planet, we pray all this in the beautiful and mighty name of our awesome Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.